0: It's going. Wow. All right. Uh, Hey, I'm Steve Gaynor, and this is Tone Control, Conversations with Game Developers. And today I'm talking to Randy Smith of Tiger Style Games. Hello. Hey. How's it going, Randy? It's going great. Good. Um, Randy has a long and storied career that, if I'm not mistaken, started at Looking Glass Studios. Yes, that was my first game development job. Yeah, worked on the the Thief series and then also at Iron Storm Austin, spent some time in L.A., and then came back here to Austin, or... uh, yeah, to Austin yep, startup uh, Tiger Style, which is an indie studio that's been doing more like uh, iOS mobile kind of stuff. Um, mostly, yeah. Yeah, Spider and uh, Waking Mars, Yes, which came out mm, last year or earlier this year? Uh, 2012. Okay, yeah. Um, and what do you guys work on now? Secret stuff that I'll probably drop during this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, stay tuned for Secrets from Randy Smith. Yeah. Um, So a lot of times on this podcast, I I start with sort of like a career retrospective-y kind of thing, but uh, we got an hour, so I figure I'll skip straight to the present, because what we've both worked on most recently, you know, I just uh, put out Gone Home um, about a month ago.
1: Thanks. Thanks, everybody.
0: Yeah. Which is an environmental storytelling game. That's pretty much all it is. You walk around this house and you find things and and examine things and read things to find the story of what happened there. And then uh, Spider, which was Tiger Style's first game, is about being a spider and exploring a house and catching bugs and stuff, like getting a high
2: score, but also... Uh, in the background, there you're making your way through this abandoned mansion and trying to learn uh, why it's abandoned, what the fate is of the people who once lived there.
0: Yeah, so there is a lot of just ingrained storytelling in the environment as you explore around and find secret areas. Um, and that, I mean, that harks back to stuff that you had worked on before in, you know, a much different kind of... Uh, uh, Context, right? Because mm-hmm. environmental storytelling and discovering stuff from the environment has been big in all the work you've done, right? Yeah, and your your background is that um, in the Bioshock
2: series, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Which
0: which comes from kind of
2: that same right. Players. There's there's a term immersive sims that kind of applies to all these games, like first generally first person uh, perspective games where you explore kind of a rich world with a. Uh, like an elaborate fiction, and you kind of unravel the fiction as you make your way through these worlds. Like one of the very first ones was System Shock. Yeah. Um, and in a, in a lot of ways, all the games that we've talked about today inherit from the System Shock legacy of placing these uh, storytelling cues in the environment.
0: Yeah, and not having cutscenes, not having control taken away from you it being this very internally consistent experience of like you are always in the environment. Um, and I thought it was really interesting how you drew that into something I think is maybe the f- one of the furthest... Like on first glance, um examples of that you know that has come from that legacy because spider is you know it's 2d it's a side scroller, you don't play as a human character, but it ends up being about a human story of the people that lived in this house, so how did you come to making spider about that like I assume that you started from a point
2: of like how how did the game design initiate you know where did where did you start from you know I think uh I think a lot of it came about a lot less deliberately than it might seem. It was not—I wouldn't say accidental. Like I think it was just sort of an outgrowth of the natural tendencies that I have and the people I've worked with have to like put a lot of meaning into every part of a game. And so I remember when we first started, Spider was definitely intended as. Uh, you know, um, a very mechan- a game mechanical experience where it's like, oh, there's this kind of this action drawing theme contextualizes you're a spider who's building webs, and where you build them matters to trap insects, and we're very much thinking about the on the surface level gameplay. Yeah, because you but, guys uh, were
0: one of the fairly
2: early. You were pretty
0: early in the iOS
2: gaming. We were. I mean, scene, I feel like. Yeah, there's a substory there about how uh, we, you know, we came out effectively. It took us eight months to build the game. We came out basically effectively eight months after the App Store opened. That's okay. not strictly true, but close enough to true. So it was like, <laughs> prior to that, there were no games that had been worked on for eight months being released. And so we were slightly terrified because up until that point, every every game that came out was just like very crappy, very like mini experience. And we're yeah. like, oh my god, does anybody on this you know in this market want a game that's been worked on for eight months? Yeah. But it turned out the answer was yes. So we were one of the <laughs> first games that came out that actually people had put that much effort into. Yeah, and I mean that made you guys stand out. I'm sure. Yeah, that definitely helps. But yeah, it also little. meant that you were in, you were you
0: were you're on the, the frontier, and I'm, I'm sure it started from a point of. What is a fun game that you can do with touch exactly. controls, right? Right.
2: So to get back to the point, is like we were very much focused on just like, hey, touch controls native to the device, fun gameplay, short play sessions, casual audience, etc. But we also, you know, just wanted to take the opportunity to do something a little bit more sophisticated. And so we knew our spider is going to be building webs and environments. And so just very naturally, it was like, oh, like we'll build some richness into this environment, some sense of meaning and a purpose and whatever. And there was actually a moment that I built like something like nine test levels in just two days to try to figure out like what a good level for this game would be just in terms of gameplay again
1: yeah
2: and the one that kind of stuck out for our play testers uh was this you know what became the entranceway in spider one it's like there's a table and a bottle of liquor and some work boots and it just looked like this guy had come home into his depressing house and was drinking after work you know right. and people are like well who is this guy and what's the rest of the story and so that just kind of like led very naturally into like well i should tell what the rest of the story is yeah yeah,
0: yeah.
2: um it's
0: it's it's interesting that you mentioned that it came from like a very mechanical place because that was true for Gone Home as well. Like you know a lot of times if I'm talking to someone they're like how did you come up with the setting or did you want to tell this story and really it was a very similar thing where we were like well I think it would be interesting just to explore a place and make it very interactive and open drawers and like be able to touch everything and examine things and make the game about that? Because in a lot of cases that's sort of the the side content of Mm -hmm. the stuff that we've worked on in the past, right? Where it's like, well, you're doing whatever your mission objectives are and mechanics and, like, fighting guys or sneaking around or whatever. And then also you find a little scene every once in a while. And so the question was, how do we take that once in a while thing and make it the heart of the game? But it did start from, okay, if we make the mechanics for walking and opening stuff and reading stuff and progressing that way... Is that actually interesting? Is it fun? And then the specifics came from there. Like, okay, well, where is it? When is it? Who are the people that are here? And I think it's it's something that's kind of, Im- I mean, not kind of important. I think it's very, very important to start from what's the
2: player doing and why is that interesting to do regardless of yeah, the, what's the, activity? the Chrome, right? So So, like, in our case, we had, like, this core gameplay, sort of like a separate style of gameplay, which was the core activity for the player. And in your case, from the beginning, you're saying, like, your intention was to make the core activity the types of things that you do when you're consuming the story in a game like that. Right, yeah, yeah. So you're, like, trying to make, like, the tactile, like, interface of reading pages or opening. Like, yeah, opening drawers or drawers, drawers, finding artifacts right. or, or whatever. And then what those things were
0: was yeah. only going to be important if it was actually engaging to, like. Be interacting with the the systems in the first place, right? And then the second job becomes well, okay. Now the stuff you're finding has to actually be
2: interesting. Was there ever a consideration to make something more of a like a traditional, like a richer game system with lots of parameters and values and emergent behaviors, or yeah. or was it more was your emphasis from the beginning to make like interactive storytelling?
0: Well, a lot of it was was just practical concerns of like I think a lot of dynamism like that comes out of characters and AI and and. Very um, unpredictable uh, kinds of things. I mean, I guess that's that's only semi true. Now that I think of it in like uh, Waking Mars, which doesn't really have like enemy creatures or things that like path around, but you know, it still has like all of the the complex properties of different plants that do different things and interact with the environment in different ways. Um, for us, in a big part of of the making of the game was just that we were very resource constrained, and we started with three people and we ended up with four people, and none of them were character artists, <laughs> you know. Like, and we had one programmer, and we needed to build a whole game. So, and like, your initial design doc was like, the world will be full of humans walking around talking <laughs> to each other. And you're like,
2: well, we don't have any way to do that, so let's have zero humans. In yeah,
1: bed.
0: yeah. It, it was sort of. It, it started from we know that. Characters are really hard. <laughs> yeah, you because know, we've worked on games where it's like they have AI, they have all their animations, yeah. they have blah, blah, blah. And if we cut characters, mm-hmm. then that makes our lives, I don't know, it makes our lives easier. It, it makes it possible to make something for us. Yeah. And so what's the interesting game where it plays to our strengths, like the kinds of games yeah. we've made, but there's nobody there, you know, and what that leaves is the environmental storytelling story. Yeah, and
2: I can tell you from working at Looking Glass that that was the impetus for, again, like, kind of the grandfather of all these games was arguably Ultima Underworld, but I'm going to keep saying System Shock for now. But, like, uh, actually, no, it is System Shock because the difference between those two games is in Ultima Underworld, it was like it was like a fantasy game and they were like, oh, you can walk up to these orcs and they'll be like, will you go rescue my friend the princess and I'll give you two gold coins. And so uh, there was these interactions that we were, you know, sort of flavored as you're uh, talking to characters, but they felt the real meat of the game was the game systemic stuff, which is yeah. more about, you know, um, having combat interactions, and exploring the world, and learning cast magic spells and the kind of more traditional game stuff. Um, so for for System Shock, when they had much freer license to do whatever they wanted, they're like, we're throwing all that out. Like you can't. Re-. They're basically they're like, we're not going to really do characters. We don't know how to do it. And to this day, I think people don't really know how to do characters, uh, systemically, much, yeah. interactively. Um, so they're like, we're just gonna have none of that. You're gonna wake up with amnesia on a space station where obviously something has gone horribly wrong, and you're kind of gonna make your way through the space station, like learning what happened. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I forget where we got. On well,
0: I mean, that's. That, I mean, that's kind of incredible that. <laughs> it seems rare for it to be like, well, we can do whatever we want. Yeah. Let's cut a bunch of stuff. Yeah.
2: Well, it's, it, I guess that's the thing, right? It's the emphasis on, like, what can you actually do in a video game that really puts the the story back in the hands of the player, you know? And, yeah. and so I think, you know, for one of the criticisms I have of Spider, and actually, you know, I think for, the, like, there's there's the pros and the cons of environmental storytelling, and the pros I think we've done a good job expressing in our software. Like, hey, there's this cool stuff you can do. The con is that it's actually not, like, the player has a rich and meaningful experience that they actually own with the story. So that's the pro. The con is that the story is over before the player gets there. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's all in the past. It's all right? in the past. There's nothing, there's nothing interactive. That's how we get away with it. We never beg the question of, like, well, how can I change the story? You can't. It happened in the past. It's actually right. archaeology gameplay. You're learning yeah. what happened.
0: Yeah, uh, I've, I've heard it. A uh, term someone that I worked with used was forensic storytelling. Yeah. You're more like someone coming across not a literal crime scene but you know all you have is the evidence of what happened um which yeah it gives you some very specific constraints because it means there isn't going to be player choice that is going to change the the path of the story or anything but it also i think like for for us um the the big thing that allowed us to do on gone home was say it's not the player character's story at all. And in in most of the cases of these these games, it isn't, right? It's like you are discovering someone else's story and you can get invested in that the way that you can from the outside when you're watching a movie or reading a book or something, right? Like, you are an observer, but an invested observer, as opposed to that really kind of tricky uh, version of you are playing the story of the character that you're playing as and they have knowledge that... You should have, but you don't, right. and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, which is why amnesia is so common in, in video games. Oh, wow, I forgot everything that
2: I should know. And it's Surprise. interesting that other media don't rely on that. Um, it's like, oh well, every character at the beginning of a movie has amnesia, so yeah. they're at the same place the audience is and trying to figure out who this person is yeah. and what's going on. In the story. Well, and it's it's interesting, I guess, because in Spider, you're not even the same species as, right. the, as so the people. We, so we story both you're use tricks instead of that. We use an amnesia style trick, right? And so in mine, like you're a spider, and like who is you know you don't really care about the human story, which is this. I want to get into that and in what your equivalent is in a bit, but. Yeah. Um, in yours, you, uh, you're this uh, lady who's coming back from being abroad, and while you're gone, your family moved to a different house. So you're coming to a house that you've never seen before. Yeah. Uh, your family's supposed to pick up at the airport, but they're not there. And so you're, you have that similar level of, like, hey, what's going on? Like, I need to investigate and figure out what, you know, I don't know this house, I don't know my way around, I don't know where my family is. So the only information that the character you're playing has that you don't have is who your family is. Right. And then your game, in a lot of ways, is about learning who this family is.
0: Yeah, and we we tried to walk that line by saying, you've been away for a long time, and most of the stuff that you're finding out about your family is stuff that that the player character wouldn't have known either. Like, there's broad strokes, like, okay, I would have known my dad was a writer, and I would have known that my mom was a forest ranger, and and so forth, but she's also finding out a lot of, like... Secrets yeah. and history and stuff that she wouldn't have known either. So the player
2: and the character are discovering it. Yeah, and I thought that time. felt really well. Like you know, oh, I have a mom and a dad. Who knew? You know, like it <laughs> right. kind of felt natural enough. And the yeah. way it was introduced that like, what your parents' occupations were felt like it was just kind of like a very quick aside, and then it got into the detail of what's been happening later. Right,
0: because there's this, there's this like, this, this. Period briefly at the beginning of the game where everything is just a question mark, right? Where you you don't even know you don't know what the controls are, you don't know what the things you can do are, you don't know who the people are or anything. And I think if you can get everything established as the player is still kind of acclimating, then it doesn't feel awkward. But yeah, if you were finding out what mom's job was an
2: hour into the game, it would be really weird. It's like by the time you know how to open a drawer and gone home, you also know that your mom's a forest ranger. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um did you, from the beginning, it been your intention that the story would be about this, this secondary character? Like, you'd basically be unraveling, like, there's a protagonist in Gone Home, and there's one character who's the most important one, and it's not the one you're playing. Was that a decision that you knew from the beginning, that there'd be kind of one character? Yeah, I think that we,
0: we knew that we wanted to focus on the, the teenage member of the family just because it's a dramatic time and you know there we, we could say the most interesting stuff about a person
2: that's in that like formative and you had Fabulous indie rock music that was a good yeah, compliment yeah. to that yeah yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. It, was a, it was a a good excuse to license some cool tunes absolutely <laughs> I um, had that
2: mixtape by the way I literally had the mixtape <laughs> that had like all of those songs on it. um But yeah, I mean, the the role of the actual player... Because I'm so old that we had tapes. (laughs) They're magnetic
0: strips. Okay. Oh, like inside a plastic case. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah. Weird. Yeah, yeah, we we, we played for a little while with who the protagonist was. Like, are they like a police officer that's been sent here to investigate or, or, you know, something like that. And it just felt too detached. It was like, okay, if it's your job to investigate, then you're doing it because the game's telling you that's your job, not because you're curious about it and you're, Mm -hmm. you know. Because there's not not a lot of stuff in the game where it's like the player is affecting what happens, but we wanted to feel very player-driven and say like, everything you do is just because you want to, not because we're telling you to. And so, yeah, we ended up saying, well, if you're a member of the family you kind of have this implicit permission to be here and not feel like you're just yeah. straight up a home invader, you know? Well, it
2: also sets a lot of tone, right? Like, if you're a cop, you're like, well, I'll probably find somebody murdered in the shower, and then I'll right. be, like, murdered in the shower, write it out a notebook, and, like, call it in or whatever, which is a very different, like, very, like, non-emotional tone compared to what's going on, where you're like, what where is dad, you know? Yeah. Like, they said they would be here, you know? Yeah, and it's 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 kind of the opposite of...
0: like you were Like you were saying about Spider is... That creature would have no investment in discovering this stuff. And so I think that's I think that that's something I've thought of is that it emphasizes the difference between the player and the character. Because the the character is literally just kind of a point in space. It's like an avatar that you're moving. It's you know, it's it's a thing for the camera to focus on. But in the fiction, it isn't comprehending what the player is comprehending. Yeah, the separation. Yeah, and and that's I think it it works. Because it is so separate, you know, there's mm-hmm. no expectation. But something that that I was that I was wondering is, you know, it's been a while since I played Spider. Do you guys was there any text in the environmental storytelling? stuff? No, and that's actually one okay. of the
2: really big differences between Gone Home and Spider, and also yeah. between Spider and and Waking Mars, uh, which we had a. a a different and to some degree failed strategy at combining environmental storytelling and and very upfront like push style storytelling in Mickey Mouse Uh, but yeah for Spider I mean again it was partially out of technical constraints like we're starting this brand new indie company and this was years ago and like you know indie companies that succeeded weren't actually a a thing so much yet Uh, and so we're like we do not want (laughs) to localize right yeah yeah I was like, we can tell a total, we can tell a complete story, and we don't have to use a single word of text. Yeah. And that just became, you know, like constraints breed good creativity. I think it became a really fun constraint to work with, and be like, well, how much can we get into like this complicated timeline and these interwoven characters and like this love triangle and like like send hints that they're searching for this like all this really complicated stuff without using a single word. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of the artifice of that storytelling comes from. Like, and again, to this other point you're making, like the fact that you're a spider who doesn't care about the story, uh, you know, means that It's up to you as a player to care about the story. Like, we are suggesting nothing about caring about the story. Yeah. Um, So if you choose to do it, it's all on you. Like, it's your fault. Like, no, I never said you should care about the story. I just (laughs) dropped very liberal hints that there was a story that you chose to pick up on, you know? Well, the thing I was thinking regarding the text is uh, spiders can't read.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and spiders can't read anyway.
2: There's a little bit of, like, there's indication there's text, but it's kind of like Charlie Brown scripts. Right, yeah. Because that's something that, so... uh, I'm glad everybody got that poorly formed illusion you. oh yeah a a, a
0: text visual version of Charlie Brown's teacher Um, that's something that we had we discussed that I don't think we're going to do because it's too goofy, but we had discussed doing cat DLC for Gone Home, where <laughs> you play, play the as cat. a cat that, do it. that, oh that walks God. around the house, and you could press, I don't know, left click would be meow, and right click would be yeah. like, push something off of the table. Yeah, so um,
2: you just ruin the house or ruin Yeah, the uh,
0: but our yeah. game is so focused on text, I was like, I wonder what we would do, because it would be really weird if you're playing as a cat, but you, the player, could read, and it's like, it's the magical reading cat. So we have to, like, blur it out, and yeah, make it Charlie Brown yeah. text mm-hmm. so the cat can't read. Like, I don't know, it's a, it's a strange place to But you guys, I imagine it was just a constraint where, yeah, it's like we're not putting any words. It kind of moved past the constraint.
2: It became like it kind of became the meaning of the story, or at least one of the meanings of the story in this important way. That like you, there's like the story that as as you know, the author of the story, we definitely intended to have some amount of relevance and resonance, and that people would care about it and be intrigued and really want to know what happened. But like we force you to play a character who can express absolutely no interest in the story. Like that, literally, the only thing you can do ever. Uh, is try to eat more bugs. <laughs> and yeah. if you ever find a secret or you get to a special area, it's only because there's more bugs in there. Like, we've right. always provided you with this this alternate motivation. And so you have this very objective view of the story. Um, was, there know, ever, was there ever any way for the player to be
0: uh, expressive with the mechanics, like Charlotte's Web style or something?
2: <laughs> so, no, not at all. Okay. Like uh, That was the original intention, and uh, we're doing a little more of that in a game we might be working on now, Online. to some extent. Online. Or we're contemplating some more okay. of that. Um, but you know, it's but it's like the thing is, like it's like the like to what degree do you need to really stick to your guns in that? Like, I don't know how many, probably almost nobody here who didn't work on the game got to the final scene in Spider because we happen to know that less than one percent of our players get to the final scene. Whoa, less than one percent. That's pretty secret. I didn't, I didn't get to it. But at the very end, we really stuck to our guns, where it's like you find this amazing thing, but the only thing you care about this thing is that there's bugs around it, and you can build webs (laughs) off this thing to catch those bugs. Right, right, right. yeah, yeah because um, I know that in Gone Home there were
0: people that since so you know we, we, we had a a full physics sim you know classic you, that's what you do Um, and we invested in the system where you anything you pick up you can put it back right where it came from because you know you're playing this character who would want to yep. be respectful of yep. the house but you can also just throw everything on the floor right. if you want to you have trash um, powers yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> you, you, you can loading, make a mess looting powers yeah, yeah. Um, you can express what kind of long-lost daughter you are. <laughs> yeah. The kind that trashes the house. Well, because yeah. people talk... Like, we got
0: emails and, and stuff from people who, at a certain point in the story, they were really mad at the parents. And so they just went into the kitchen and just took everything out of the fridge and threw it on the floor. <laughs> like, just to show them, like... Yeah. Ah. Uh, and it means nothing. It has no mechanical value. Like, in practical terms, the parents are never actually going to come home. But people want to... Spoiler. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> That's actually not true. <laughs> or is Or is it? Well, in practical terms, you will yeah. never be playing the game and the parents are like, You,
2: can't, you can't just wait in the house for two weeks
0: and then no, come home. Sorry. Oh. Um, but people want to use the tools that are in the game to, like, make their mark and say, Here's who I am.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We had some of that in, in Thief, actually. One of my favorite anecdotes from Thief is uh, in, from the very first level or second level where it's like Lord Bafford's Manor. Mm-hmm. Not that I used that word on purpose. First, um, <laughs> that's, the, that's the first level. Yeah. After so, so uh, you know, there's all these guards walking around who are fictionally guarding the treasure. Like Lord Bafford has this jeweled scepter that he loves, and you're there to steal it. And you're kind of, like, the idea is you're supposed to kind of sneak past all the guards and then, like, get the scepter and get out, right? But then a a bunch of players did this thing where they knocked out every single guard in the entire place with their blackjack and then piled all their bodies in the dining room. And they, like, kind of posed them as well as they could, like, draped across the table and on the ground in the corner and stuff like that. And then they got, so the guards are all still alive but they're all asleep and in the dining room, and then they went and got every wine bottle in the entire place, <laughs> and threw all those in there too, and then took the scepter, and so like, they, they made this story that when Lord Bafford comes home, it's gonna be like, well, the guards got trashed, and then someone stole the scepter, which is it's like this kind of like amazing, like, uh, because there's so much context, because people know about guards and what they're supposed to be doing and about getting drunk and so forth, like, there's all this uh, context where you can craft these stories, because you can pick objects up and move them around, and you can like, make your own story with this like, kind of canvas we gave you, But uh, the game doesn't do anything about it. You know, like, the game can't respond. Right. But the game actually could respond. Like, if we, like, ditched the entire, like, you can sneak and blackjack people kind of mechanics and really focus on just, like, you can create the story and then the game, we put all the effort instead into, like, detecting that story. Like, there might be something there. It's always kind of intrigued me. Well, if you took away the blackjack and you had to knock out the guards by just getting them really drunk. Yeah.
0: That was the whole game. There you go. There's an option.
2: Getting people drunk. (laughs) Um, So one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, uh, so... You know, as a quick anecdote to set this up, like in Waking Mars, one of our characters really likes the Martian caves that he's hanging out in. He thinks they're beautiful and awesome. And so he says that, but we were really concerned about saying that because that's an opinion that, you know, we're also asking, we're hoping the player has, right? Because right. we tried yeah. to make wonderful looking caves and beautiful art. And so we hope the player's like, this cave is beautiful. But if the, the player thinks like, this cave is kind of crappy looking. And then the <laughs> character is like, this cave is beautiful. like right. There's this cognitive dissonance and it's almost like we we asked, um, you know, we asked the player to care. Yeah. So one of the things we did in Spider is we kind of like dropped super far back, as I've said, and like the, we, you know, explicitly the character does not care about the story. So if yeah. you've chosen to get invested, that's your own problem. It's up to you and you're the one, you know, and I really think it's helpful. Drive investment because players are like, no, this is me. I need to figure this out. Yeah. Um. So you kind of you kind of uh, gave yourself a harder pitch than that and gone home because you're like, no, no, you're playing a human who's related to these people that have some fate. That right. you Really. So it, it seems like uh, you had like kind of asked the player to care. And how did you feel? Like what what did you do about that problem? Were you aware of that problem and how did you handle it? Yeah. The I I know exactly what you're talking about because there's a lot
0: of times that you'll you'll be playing a game. And they, they there's there's a thing that they have started doing more in like horror games and stuff, where it's like when something scary is going on, the character starts like breathing really hard and there's like a heartbeat and stuff, but if you don't actually find it scary, you're just like what, bro? Just yeah. chill out. Uh and and yeah, yeah it, it really it's emphasizes, one wolf pup, I can handle it. <laughs> it 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 really pushes on like, okay, here's what the designer wants me to be feeling. Yep. And I'm not. And now it's just more obvious. So like so yeah, for us, we never wanted Katie to react to any of the any of, like, the story, like, emotional stuff. You know, like, oh, it's a, you hear an audio diary, and then Katie is like, oh, my God, or something. Because then, exactly, it's like, well, the player's not like, oh, my God. Or maybe they are,
1: yep. but they just wanted
0: to be the one saying means, it. They don't need they, to hear yeah. this
2: other person uh, reiterating it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a, that's an interesting data point. Like, if Katie had said, like, if you read this, like, you know, telling journal entry, and you're like... Holy crap! Is that true? And if Katie was like, "Holy crap!" you'd be like, "Just relax." Like, yeah. But like, even if she literally said the exact same thing, I was thinking, I think I would. It would, it would take away from my experience a little bit. Right. Because and that's kind of like key to environmental storytelling is that you, the player, get to create the emotional response. Like, yeah. Nobody's doing it for you.
0: It's a really and it's a really weird because um, sometimes you want the game to know exactly what you're doing and 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 react to that, and acknowledge it, and it feels cool. Like, we have that one note in the game, in the upstairs, that there's a bulletin board, and there's some notes, and one of them pinned on there is just, Sam, stop leaving every damn light in the house on, you're as bad as your sister, from Dad. And players love it, and we got a lot of good feedback on that, because it's like, I have been leaving all the lights what on, do you know? Uh, you know um, and because I'm know. scared, shit. <laughs> so it's like, that's the cool kind of acknowledgement of, we know yeah. what you're doing, and we're gonna show you that, and you're gonna feel cool about it, but then we know what you're feeling, and we're going to feed that back, I think is a much tougher sell because, yeah, either you don't know what you're feeling or you do, but it cheapens it somehow. Yeah. Um, Even
2: if it's perfect, it still cheapens it. Yeah.
0: And so for us, the place where we wanted to put Katie's stuff, because we, so when you mouse over something, it says the text of what's going to happen when you click on it, like pick up, book, or, or whatever. But in some cases, we wanted to have Katie's internal monologue be expressed through that text. So, if she knew something that the player wouldn't necessarily know, but that she would, you mouse over a book, and instead of saying "pick up book," it says "pick up one of Dad's old books that he right, wrote." Yeah. You know, or, or um, this, some of this stuff is is if she would have a personal reaction to something because she knows the family, but the player wouldn't. So, when you're going around and, and going through your parents' bedroom. Mm-hmm. And there's, you open up a drawer yeah, and there's like, a, ew. Yeah, you. Yeah, there's like a condom in the drawer and the mouse over text is, oh, barf. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, because it's her parents, it's not your parents. Right. But it's a little laugh line because you're like, oh, yeah, she would feel
2: that way and that's and, who I'm playing as. And yeah, it doesn't intrude a little bit on your sense of the character. Like, you're playing this character and it's like, well, this is how your character feels. Right. But it, in that case, it did work. It felt appropriate. That felt like very inside. It was almost like a hint, like, oh, you're playing this kind of character. Right. Yeah. um and, and we just had to be really
0: careful. With it, you know, because yeah, if you if you got into the space of speaking for the player instead of speaking for the character, then it got really grody pretty pretty quickly. Um, like, there's that. Did you find that note in the basement in the servants' quarters that Katie doesn't let you read? All of it doesn't sound like it. Maybe I think. So. Yeah. Oh, you you, you think you did? So you you got an older note um, from a different character? No, it's it's one of Sam's. Uh, it's like a diary page from Sam. So you're, you're down in the... Whisper in my ear. No, spoilers, not spoilers, whatever. It's not a huge deal. So um, you're down in the servants' quarters, and it's where Sam and Lonnie have been down there spending a lot of time together, and you find this diary page that's been torn out, and it's kind of stuff behind a, a dresser or whatever, and you start to read it, and it starts to become clear that she's talking about the first time that they had sex together, and you... I. You start reading through it, and then the diary just closes uh, automatically. And if you try to click on it again, the mouse text is just "Nope, not reading any more of that." Okay, that's enough of that, and you can't read it again. Um, and it's Katie because she's reading about her sister, and she's right. like, "No." And so, like, you didn't I mean, trust gamers to be uninterested in the same way. That <laughs> no, I did not. Um, but but you know, it's, it's one of those places where we where we we did step over the line intentionally, and we were like, in this one specific case, we're going to you know intervene because it's about what this character is willing to do and again we had good responses to that because it's the exception and because mm-hmm. it's it's a joke you know basically <laughs> um and it reinforces who you're playing as without yeah kind of saying and here's how you should feel about it it it's sort of it's emphasizing the character is different from the player but only in as much as she has history with this family in a way that you don't mm-hmm. you know
2: so I mean I really like to not just to make but also to play these kind of games that where the storytelling is in the environment and I feel like my job is the forensic archaeology guy who runs around and tries to figure out what's going on and I played a bunch of them and gone home really really worked for me um, and I you know and a lot of it's just because like the subject material is very relatable it's like real people in real circumstances and stuff. Uh, But a big part of it was I thought there was this thing that you guys did that I'd never seen anyone do before that I thought was handled super well. So I'm going to try to start describing it, and at some point you can take over and tell us about it, or I'll try to formulate a question. But, like, um, when you start playing Gone Home, it seems like a pretty domestic scenario. Like, you know there's going to be, like, I knew it was an environmental storytelling game. There's going to be no live characters for a while, at least, and I was going to be, like, looking through books and notes and drawers and trying to figure out what's going on. And we said up front that you weren't ever going to do combat or, like, be in danger, like no one was going to jump out and kill you or whatever. Right, yeah, you didn't need spell points. Yeah. Right. Um, so... Yeah, no, not required. So you start, you know, I wasn't quite sure what the game was going to be, but I figured, you know, I'd learn some story, and then the the really fascinating piece of design and storytelling that goes on for me in Gone Home uh, is that dis- despite knowing all that stuff up front, the nature of the game and the story really kind of profoundly changes a few times in ways that really drive how you, the player, feel about it. Like, you're just going through this activity of wandering through this house and finding one little, like, clue and one little piece after another and putting together this backstory, but despite that pretty strong restriction, like... At first, you think it's just this, and then you get really worried it might be this, and then you're worried again that it could be this, and then you kind of get past that, and you're like, okay, it's not that, but then you're on this, and then you realize it's kind of probably about this. <laughs> Which <laughs> um, you are being very, I'm being hand- very vague. Yeah. So, how many people would be worried about spoilers if we got really specific? Raise your hand. Yeah. So that's too many. All right. Yeah. And we just want yeah. to be like, you're in trouble. Yeah. Well, it's um, it's um it's, and so the, the, yeah, the, and that, that's pretty controlling the
0: the tone of the game, right? Like, because. Yes. The tone of Gone Home, like you said, shifts over the, the course of the game, and the, it, like so many of the like creative decisions we made, um, it, it really started out as a practical decision, where we were like, okay, we're telling people there's going to be no danger in this house, no one's going to get you, whatever, but if you feel super safe, and you feel like, well, I should just, I guess I don't really have to worry about, like finding stuff, there's no urgency here, then that's also bad, you know, because what we wanted you to feel was, like, compelled to uncover this mystery, and to to want to, like, get to the next piece, and feel like, I have to figure out what happened here, right, and so our gambit there was, like, okay, like, dark and stormy night, unfamiliar place, like, creaky, you know, house noises, and... Not your house. yeah. An yeah. old house
2: with an interesting history.
0: Right, and... All these little hints towards like that something um, is off about this place, and so it starts. And people have talked about how it, it the it starts out feeling like a horror game, you know, like very, like the high tension, right? Which is okay because what we wanted you to feel like is there's something not right. I I need to discover what has gone wrong here. And where's then, my
2: family? Did they get in an accident? Why didn't they pick me up at the airport?
0: Right. Yeah. Like there are all these unexpected things. Why? why was it in this why is the world in the state that it was in when, when i arrived um, but the thing that i know about doing like scary atmosphere is that it just wears off after a while like it doesn't matter right like it, when when you're playing a, any a, a real you know a, a horror game yeah. and the first couple rooms have like dead bodies and blood everywhere it's like yeah. oh that's freaky and then 2 hours later yeah you don't even see Dead Bodies and Blood anymore because, add ah, some more of those. <laughs> yeah, <they're, laughs> whatever, there's a right. no
2: reason that horror movies start off by establishing the characters and not just being like, zombies are eating people. Right. Which like, is a different kind of movie, which can also be great, but it's not a horror movie. It right. An, it's been, it's been. Um,
0: and And so we kind of played on that by saying, like, okay, we're going to start in this high-tension atmosphere, this kind of scary atmosphere, and people are just going to get used to it and not find it scary anymore after a while, and simultaneous with that, we're going to transition your understanding from, okay, this isn't about trying to find out when the serial killer is going to jump out or, yeah, when, when you know, the, the the freaky twist of somebody's dead or whatever is going to happen. It's about these characters and this family's story, and I'm getting interested in that and invested in that while my susceptibility to the spooky stuff is just naturally wearing off, and then, yeah, it kind of transitions naturally. You know? And so is that deliberate? Um, it, was, it was something that I... Y- yes. I mean, it's, it was like you were saying um, with your games, where it all kind of comes together over time. Like, it wasn't, like, a foolproof plan, and it's like, we're going to start, and this is exactly how we're going to do it. It was more like, you know, you start building the atmosphere, and then you see what you have, and then you start to emphasize that. And Because, like, there's there's stuff that we put in the game to kind of uh, push players' buttons a little bit, you know, where it's like, okay, it seemed like a spooky story, but we need to start emphasizing that it's really actually just about real people so we'll put the red stains in the bathtub so you're like oh here's where the scary shit is really going to pop up and then you find that it's hair dye Mm -hmm. and it's just a oh okay actually I guess this is just the real world and something fucked up didn't happen here and start kind of keep pushing on those symbols of, now something fucked up's going to happen. Oh, no, yeah. wait, it really is a game normal story. And game really you know?
2: expertly flirts back and forth between, like, these almost, like, tropes of, like, either alternately, like, horror movies or, you know, video game horrors of, like, here's the stuff where you know that something spooky's going to happen, something crazy is going on, but then it really, like, expertly pulls it back into, like, oh, there's this very relatable, concrete, like, textured, tangible, familiar reason why that was happening and so it goes to like oh it's i'm going off in these rails and like no it's just it's just you know this is a 15 year old girl dying her hair red because she likes to to listen to indie rock right and you're like oh i absolutely know that actual real thing <laughs> and so it kind of flirts back and forth for a while and i think like you were saying you almost undersold it because again i think this is a thing that was super powerful for me about gone home is that when you finally get out of this like emotional crisis that, that you're worried you're going to be playing the game and scream out loud and your parents are going to have to come down and comfort you because <laughs> I was at my parents' house I don't live there all the time, <laughs> <laughs> but I was there when I quit get... the game. I sleep over at my friend's house sometimes, just sometimes. <laughs> my parents are my friends. Um, you know, once you get over that and there's a little bit of like emotional exhaustion about that fear. Like, despite the fact that as a game, like, even though I really want to be invested in characters in games, I almost never am. Even if they're, you know, even if people are trying to do a good job in making characters other than the really strong guy who doesn't look at explosions behind right, him and points yeah. two pistols at the camera. <laughs> even even when they are better characters than that, like, I rarely feel really invested. And so I think I was just worried about the scary part. Uh, and focusing on that and then like by the time I came out of that I was a little emotionally exhausted and then the characters had actually worked their way into my hearts a little bit yeah because I have two hearts <laughs> 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 the other one's just yeah I was going yeah, to say ready you get the second one <laughs> it's backup right. um and uh and at that point I was like I, I realized what the story was actually about, which was much more relatable interactions between characters, uh, and it actually worked for me. I was like, Oh, I really I'm really sad that this didn't happen and that, you know, this is happening and that's cool for that person, but oh my god. Yeah, and, like yeah. I actually had a, a real you know, human character story like experience in a game, which is
1: super
2: rare with a capital <laughs> S, capital R. Well, yeah, and it's it's something that that you guys took advantage
0: of. And something that I'm that I'm interested in. In is the transition from Spider to Waking Mars. Because there's a lot of different things about those two games that that explore different territory, Mm -hmm. right? Because there was a lot of similar territory, um, subject matter-wise, just as far as old Abandoned Manor family history, backstory stuff between Spider and Gone Home. Mm -hmm. And then after you guys did Spider, you did Waking Mars, Mm -hmm. and... A, it's way more about the kind of emergent mechanical stuff mm-hmm. that, that comes clearly from a looking-glass background, and B, it's it's sci-fi and has living characters and a lot of, like, dialogue between uh, individuals in real time. So what was the motivation for for making
2: that leap in all those different ways? Um so, we always start from the point of view of mechanics, as I described before. We thought about the spider mechanics first, and uh, we had been thinking about... Uh, I mean, basically, we are like, hey, we want to be a non-violent studio that never... The, the goal is never destruction, so a really obvious okay. alterna- alternative was creation.
1: Yeah, well, that's interesting.
2: Uh, so, you guys have, like... Like a a, like pillar is like we're gonna be a studio that never makes a violent game. And not because violent games aren't great, there's a ton of amazing great violent games. Just because that territory's been explored so much and we really wanna push ourselves. We feel like it's important to the medium that we that we as a group of creators are able to make games that are about something other than the things we do all the time racing yeah, yeah. fighting platforming and so forth cool so that's like why we have that goal but um so the obvious alternative to destruction is creation you know and so we started thinking about the gardening games and plants and yeah. ecosystems and like kind of simulated life type stuff so that's kind of where it started from at some point it shifted over to being a sci-fi game It had previously been a caving game it just kept that you know i knew about the the real life you know facts about caves on Mars and the potential that they had harbored life in the past and so forth so you yeah. kind of we're going with the story in that direction um, relevant to environmental storytelling um, so we don't we don't we don't start with story because that just comes so naturally like we would you know but there's always some sense of fiction in our games and that yeah you know, it's I feel like it's fun and challenging to put that in anywhere so we tend to start with the mechanics yeah we figure we'll fit it we'll well, it's one everything.
0: of those things where the story is always going to show up at some point. Yeah, right? you well, can't for, avoid it. Right for, some, for
2: the right kinds of creators. Yeah, some sure. people you know have the fortune that they don't get distracted by creating an entire story for their games. Right. But In any case, so uh, so I made this enormous, elaborate, uh, to somewhat you know factually backed up by research, huge forty-page PowerPoint, <laughs> it's literally about the the background of the cave that you're exploring in Waking Mars. Yeah. And the idea was there would be environmental storytelling that you'd figure out the story as you go through and you notice these objects and you're, you know, you're, much like in Spider, your character's trying to figure out what they mean. We were originally intending a silent character. Yeah. And so that way it would be up to the player to care and get invested and try to figure it out. Were but, they going to be a silent character and not have, like, their backup people either? Or it's just going to be a one? Yeah, there's going to be one character uh, who you just watch. You know, and uh the problem was that the spider story is about very familiar stuff. It's about mansions and love triangles and marriages and financial difficulties and yeah. and stuff that people just instantly get. Like you just put one picture on the screen and people are like, Oh yeah, that you know, yeah, they didn't yeah, pay yeah. their bills, somebody and somebody hid them, so therefore they're you know there's some kind of financial trouble that they don't want someone else to know about. Like yeah. instantly tells that story. But like when you're talking about like the triple point of water and, you know, how stalactites are formed right. and you know whether it's this is carbon based life it's really hard to put a picture on screen <laughs> at the scale that this human character would be noticing and be like oh that totally explained everything cuz not everybody has a background in planetary geology yeah if you are not a trained xenobiologist yeah. you may not recognize the cell structure of right and you know we work really hard to make these relatable games and i'm like well this is not going to be a relatable game this forty point PowerPoint, powerpoint we should just ship it with the game if we really want people to understand what's going on <laughs> yeah uh, t- uh so so we're, you know, it was a really rough decision. Actually, we're like, I guess we'll put characters in that talk to each other. Like, holy <laughs> shit, this is like so again. Like the fact that Waking Mars opens with characters talking to each other in a uh, cutscene with dialogue that you can't, you know, you can click through, but you have to like, you have to click through. Yeah. is like horrifying to me in a certain way, <laughs> and I'd rather have done the opposite. But the idea was there's environmental storytelling going on in the background, and your characters have the modern day real life story of trying to interpret it. You know, yeah, and we yeah, kind yeah. of invited the audience to have a slightly different interpretation, and our two characters have different interpretations. that kind of go back and forth.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but that's the idea. Is like you're you are playing the archaeologist in the archaeology gameplay. So we're trying yeah, yeah. to do both. Uh, I don't think it worked super well in part because we didn't get to really double down on the environmental storytelling. You know, like yeah. in Spider, we can really angst about like how far this glass is on this pile of books, and like make sure it really communicates how this person was feeling while they were drinking that. You know, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but in Waking you're like, ah, there's a giant structure, it looks kinda like this. Somebody guarded up, thank you. That's an important part of the story, but I don't know. I, maybe the characters will talk about it. Like it kind of became a crutch and, and a distraction.
0: Yeah, well it is one of those things where it's it's about information that largely requires expertise. And then yeah. the characters are experts, so yep. they're interpreting things for you, and that's that's interesting to have access to all the information, but it does feel like a very different experience from, yep. oh, I know what this means, in here, you know, like, Im-
2: implicitly. Um, yeah, and I guess, like, one of my questions is, like, so that was, and I feel, I feel good that we did it, and I think it succeeds in a lot of ways. I'm not a total critic of it. Um, but, you know, the reason we did that, again, is because we're trying to solve this problem that environmental stories are dead stories. They're over yeah. before you get there. And we're like, well, like, how do we make this a little bit more, right now, more current, about real people who are on screen? Yeah. Um, you know, and so I think like both of our games have done a really clever job avoiding the hard problems. And, yeah. and one of my questions is like, well, how do we take another step forward, if not to solve the hard problems, to get a little bit more modern, a little bit more current and rich? This is something I, I think about a lot. Yeah, um, I mean, it's true that
0: uh, you know, uh, people will ask me about like, oh, what was the inspiration for yeah doing a story like this without characters? And it was like we had to, you know, like, oh, so that we didn't have to do hard work, like, that was actually really difficult to solve, um,
2: and... Well, it's not more than that, it's just like, if you tried, you'd probably fail, and it'd be kind of embarrassing. Right, writing. yeah, because it's
0: like, you could say, okay, and we will do characters, we'll figure out how to do it, oh, we actually did a bad job with them, and it didn't make the game better, and We've we have learned about have spent the Uncanny
1: Valley, which... Yeah. You think, yeah.
0: <laughs> you know? Let me send you the Wikipedia page. Um, but, I, I, I don't know, I think that, like, that said, I, I don't think that characters are inherently like a bad idea or um or an unsolvable problem i think it's i think it's partly about representation of like them on screen so that you don't end up saying we're going to try and make them photorealistic and don't end up in the uncanny valley and the other side of it is just making them interactively relevant and making it mm-hmm. part of like why it's interesting to be exploring the place you're discovering what you're discovering right um because something that I find interesting conceptually is, like, in Gone Home, the core loop is you explore to find information that tells you more about what happened here and lets you explore more by, like, showing you where a secret area is or giving you a key or whatever so that you can explore more to find more information to explore more to understand more to, you know, etc. Um, and I think that in that frame it could be really interesting to have a character there that extends that loop by one one unit and it's like you explore to find information that gives you something to talk to the character about, and they tell you something that gives you more information to explore more, to find more, to talk to them about, to, you know, and their interpretation of what's going on adds mm. to the player's
2: understanding. Yeah, yeah that sounds good. Um, so it's almost like if in Waking Mars the character you're playing wasn't talking, but the, the handler character is somewhere else. Like every At the end of every chapter, you go and chat with them. You'd have like a conversation tree, who knows, but... You well, yeah. ask them about what you discovered, and they kind of give you opinion. Yeah, it could
0: be like you explore and you find stuff, and maybe what it means isn't clear to you, you know. But once you found enough stuff, they say, "Oh, that means that you have this interaction that you didn't know about that mm-hmm. you can do with this, you know, kind of game symbol thing mm-hmm. that, that you found." Oh, okay. So I should go back and find those again and dissolve that kind of rock or whatever, you know. Um, Is maybe like an, an interesting thing in the in in Waking Mars terms. Um, because, yeah, I think that in a lot of cases, characters are just there to be characters or just there to have an excuse for dialogue or for a cutscene yeah. or whatever, um or to be enemies, obviously, which makes them very gameplay relevant, and I think that there's some space to explore that's between characters being enemies that you fight and characters just being just dialogue trees that are there to like. Sell stuff to, or give you quest objectives, or just to be very baked and static, like Phoenix, Wright or something like that. And to be in that middle ground where it's like they're relevant to to the gameplay, but they aren't an obstacle, or yeah. and or they whatever.
2: aren't trying to be the gameplay. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so I don't know. I think that's something that is uh, potentially worth e- exploring. Cool. So know? when
2: will we see that in Gone Home? <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll have more to announce.
0: I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's all just uh, just sort of. Um, High, high, high-level thinking about shit at this point, um, but I don't know. I, I think that there is potential there to say like it's not entirely a dead world, but it is still about exploration and forensic, you know, storytelling. But there's some dynamism to it in the yeah. in the present tense because I do think that that's something that's like worth trying to to figure out. You know? Yeah. All right, well, that's a pretty good yeah, amount yeah. of time. We're a few minutes before one. Do um, you guys but
1: have any interest in taking a couple of questions? I'd yeah, yeah. Than, yeah. I'm, yeah I I would, that'd would, be awesome. I think we could if do, we do it, a, like, time. yeah, probably, oh, yeah. like, I two or three Two questions,
2: uh, questions. Who's Who's got the best question? Yeah. H- hold up the amount of fingers on a scale of one to five of how good <laughs> your question is. <laughs> we got a four. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a four is the winner right now. That's a modest, because <laughs> that's our only vote so far. Well, go for it.
0: Um, so a question I, i'm I'm guessing you haven't played through it. Okay, so a question from the audience is how to handle the end is really hard in a game like this. Yeah, yeah it got gone
2: home, I think you really set your, yourself up for a, a difficult challenge. Yeah, so
0: the question being how do you how do you make progression in a game like gone home and how do you do an ending and make it feel satisfying to have completed the game yeah. um, and for us, at the at the heart of the thing, it really was a linear game. like at the end of the day you're you're finding the points of a linear story by exploring a nonlinear space largely and like, doing it of your own volition but you're still finding chronological events of oh this is what happened when i first left home a year ago and then by the time you get to the end the last event that you find is what happened like immediately before you arrive so it fills in that that gap um and i think that it's just, it's a lot of really small twiddly stuff where like you have to make it feel satisfying to find each of those points on the on the 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 threat, you know, on the the string of pearls, um, and to not make it feel like you were just dragged along by your nose, but that you actually found them like voluntarily in an intentional way, and then to make it feel satisfying at the end, it's really just like a writing thing. You know, it's like it, it's it's like the script has to dramatically end in a place that you feel like it was worth getting to the to the end of to find out what the events that happened, but yeah. it's like not way
2: more. I think Uh, we're a little bit more like James Cameron tricky about it where we're like, oh, we're going to foreshadow the ending. You're kind of like going to draw this outline of it in your mind. And then when you get there, it's going to feel like really epic and important. And I think Gone Home is just like, no, this is a very human story. And it ended kind of like you would expect, but that's the point. Like, it is a satisfying, personal sort of ending.
0: Yeah, and some of it was about drawing your expectations away from how it would end. Because we basically tell you how it's going to end at the beginning, give or take. And then for the whole game to be about you thinking, well, maybe it actually happened like this or like that. And so it actually feels kind of surprising to have wrapped up in a a relatable way. There's this
2: pretty cool bit where you realize where your parents are. And so then you're like it kind of like moves uh, like the moves a lot of the story away and it's like so it's just this now and by the way here's the key for that last spot right and you're like oh yeah. so you kind of go and have the final experience and you make that noise you do um, you do oh. but your character is not
0: uh, okay. one more, one more, more
1: yeah. yeah anybody else okay. all right
0: let's uh, thank our guests <laughs> for coming up today Randy, for thank, thank you Andy for having me so yeah picking up from uh our very exciting chat on stage at Mm -hmm. fantastic arcade uh where we we kind of jump to the present and we're talking about what we've worked on most recently um, we're gonna do this episode of tone control in reverse order and uh, we're gonna take this opportunity to rewind back and talk about how you got into the games industry and what your earliest projects were were like cool um, so we mentioned it on stage but uh, your first design job was at looking glass in uh, Cambridge Boston yeah um, so how did you start there like um, it's, it's from so from guys I've worked with and everything that I've heard it was a really weird bipolar kind of studio where they were like artists versus program. You know, like, there were the real, like, MIT geek kind of guys and then a totally other group of people who did not have that, like, high-level, you know, like, kind of techie background. Um, and you were not, like, an MIT grad student, I don't
2: think, right? No, I wasn't from MIT. I was from a pretty similar school. Not, yeah? as, not as good, but a tech school. Yeah, yeah. Not far away from MIT. Yeah. So did you, did you get hired on as a designer? How did you even start talking to them? So I got hired in nineteen ninety seven and that was a long time ago and and back then there wasn't actually game degrees you could get in college and stuff. So there was no way to like go to school specifically to be in games. Um, so I did kind of like what I think is either the next best thing or depending on what game school you're in, a far better thing. So I got a, I got a degree in computer science uh, and uh, a minor in psychology and a concentration in media arts, which means like using Photoshop and stuff like that. Yeah. So it was basically, you know, you couldn't become a game designer in school. And those were like the kind of things I think are really valuable for game designers, programming, uh, you know, player psychology and so forth. And um, I had originally, like, I assumed somewhat correctly that getting a design job is really hard because it's hard to prove that you have design skills, right? Yeah. Much like if you're trying to become a writer in Game City or something. Like, it's hard to start out in that capacity. So I was intending to try to become a programmer at a a game company and then move my way into design. And that's essentially what happened. So um, I started off at some boring non-game job for just one summer. And during that time, I was actually making a list of every company in games I was hiring and it was like ranked according to how badly I wanted to work at that company and so Looking Glass wasn't strictly speaking hiring they hadn't said they were hiring but it's still at the very top of my list because with games like System Shock I was just like absolutely really wanted to work at this company and back then they didn't say they are working on the game Thief yet but they were, They had this like really evocative teaser website for the game called uh, was just then called The Dark Project Yeah, and uh, it didn't say very much but I could tell it was probably going to be this really dark fantasy pretty tangibly realistic uh uh stealth game and i was like that just blew me away because there weren't stealth games back then either so like just everything right. about this project i like desperately wanted to be on it yeah so but like i said they were not hiring so what i did was i just like looked up the information for the project director greg lipicolo who then yeah. later went on to uh be the project director of guitar hero and was an important figure at harmonics he's the uh, president of development now or something like that i can't yeah. remember exactly
0: well, and he did the music for System
2: Shock One.
1: He did, stuff, yeah, right? yeah.
2: And he had formerly been in a band called Tribe, which, with some other folks like Eric and Terry Brocious, who yeah. are important characters at, at Looking Glass in their legacy as well. So they did sound, and Terry is yeah Terry's voice, the voice and, she showed, and she's a really great writer. I'm yeah. actually working for her right now on our latest project. Yeah, but, uh, well, and really, she worked
0: on the script for Dishonored.
2: Uh, yep,
0: with uh, Austin Grossman. Yeah, she's,
2: she's a real favorite uh, collaborator for a lot of us folks in, uh, who were still working at Immersive Sims and their their yeah. legacy. Yeah. So anyway, it was, yeah, yeah. I didn't know Greg at the time, uh, but found his personal information and basically like rang the phone that was sitting on his desk. <laughs> and he answered, he's like, hello. And I'm like, is this Greg the LePiccolo? And I'm like, don't hang up. Like, I would like a job at your company, which is not a strategy for getting a job that I recommend today. Uh, but I just like really wanted to do this, you know, yeah. and I really wanted to work at that company. And so I talked to him about it and he sat there and he listened patiently and he's like, okay, well, you know, I had volunteered to drive myself down for the interview. So basically all I was asking for is their time. And they're yeah. like, they were actually hiring or could afford to, they were going through a bunch of transitions. So they had me down. I did one round of interviews. They sent me home with some homework in the, you know, the in-house editor, the oh, engine. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so I did all that. Did they like
0: give you a CD with their editor burned yeah. onto
2: it? Yeah. That's hardcore. <laughs> yeah, and this thing was brutal. Like, oh well, yeah, I've, yeah. Seen, I've seen some footage of it. Well, it this looked... was version 0.5, too. This thing was just not ready there, for prime time. There was
0: some, there was some like, German TV station came to Looking Glass at some point and did, like, a weird documentary thing, and I watched that, and they had a little bit of footage of the Thief editor. And I think it was while Thief 1 was still in dev, I'm pretty
2: sure. Okay, it sounds and familiar. it looked nasty.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know,
2: but at the time... I mean, there weren't really editors that were super usable. There was no yeah. Unity at all. and yeah, yeah. Um, You know, I, we got by. Like, And it was in development with the folks who were in the office. So if we really needed a feature, they would often help us out. Well, but was, in any it case... It was they... super easy.
0: I mean, super early, I should say. Yeah. Like full 3D stuff. Like, yeah. there wasn't a lot out there that was... Like, there was the Quake editor yep. and the Dark Engine, I guess, yep. you know, and not a whole lot else that was all polygonal.
2: Oh, totally. DL it was all polygonal, everything. and it was, like, ray trace, light-maps, blah, 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 yeah. like, portal-based. And so, yeah, it was, like, this brand... To me, a was super exciting, brand-new technology. Like, yeah. I don't think the PlayStation 2 was out yet. Either. Right. Or 1, rather. 2 definitely wasn't.
0: Yeah. I but think I mean, the, the, it was early in the PS1's life. I mean, yeah. maybe even when you started, yeah, it hadn't come out
2: yet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So 3D gaming wasn't even really a thing yet. Yeah. yeah. Um... So yeah, so I built some 3D spaces to go along with some design documents and I filled the design documents out and I brought them back and they had me in for another round of interviews and yeah, I got the job. I don't know, I don't know internally how hotly it was debated whether I was a good member of the team, (laughs) but I do, I do think that one of the things that went well was that I obviously had a kinship, you know, a spiritual sort of like kinship with the ideas of the studio and had a lot of love for their designs. And I think, you know, some of the key design folks like Doug Church probably recognized that I had some good design instinct and they could develop me, but I really do owe a lot to Looking Glass, who was... Uh, really capable mentors and like a super smart group of guys and, and ladies who were awesome at sort of like putting me through through the, the tutorial paces of being a good designer
0: yeah well and I imagine at that time just having someone who connected so strongly with their output with like Ultima Underworld and System Shock and that they would like look up you know the project director's info and like reach yeah. out to the studio and stuff kind of meant a lot because I mean They were, even though they had the ultimate license for Underworld and System Shock was published by Origin and everything, they still weren't, like, the most, you know, crazy high-profile studio in the world. No, they Uh, were definitely a
2: design boutique, and so, like, they had, like, super fans like myself, and they had a lot of, you know, a lot of admiration from within the industry of people who were like, wow, you guys can really do some innovative things. Uh, But, you know, the publisher and the financial side of those relationships weren't always as as rosy. You know, it was sort of like, oh, well, these guys win awards, but are they, you know... I mean, Looking Glass in particular had this problem where they were inadvertently always going head-to-head with id Software. So, like, they released Ultima Underworld, which is a completely sophisticated 3D role-playing game with conversations and inventories and quests in, like, an open-world in 1992? Yeah. It was 1992, and that was the same year that Doom? Not Doom, not Quake. Uh, yeah, Wolf 3D. I Wolf think, 3D yeah. came out. So, like, Wolf 3D is, like, in my opinion, the, the consummate shooter and that, you know, Black Ops today is basically Wolf 3D <laughs> with some extra graphics and, and a different, like, reload button. And, I mean, it's super fast-paced. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and that's partially because Wolf 3D is so great. Like, I'm not trying to diss on shooters. I think yeah. there's a lot that goes on in shooters, but I don't think... I don't think uh, Black Ops is that far of an advancement conceptually over Wolf 3D which was really good at what it did you know um but Wolf 3D was this awesome shooter and it went out against this really deep rich game which is definitely slower definitely wasn't as polished in its action phases um and then that happened again for them when they released really System Shock. They were against something else, like just so basically they just came head to head with a different way to apply the technology. Yeah. I which think was, I think know,
0: Doom came out around the same time. Yeah, that, I think it was Doom. System Shock One came out. And, and so basically, it just, same same idea, right? Like super fast paced, accessible right. versus really deep, kind of heady and, stuff. And
1: today
2: the you know the market for games is infinite, but back then it wasn't. And so it's like it wasn't like they could just go reach a different audience. It's like those people had already spent their money on yeah. the software. So I think that was a, a problem for Looking Glass as well. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I even when when the games were coming out, I I was not I couldn't get into them. They went over my head, right? Like, I mean, I was they're pretty tough. I'm I'm a little younger than you are, so like when they were coming out, I was in I don't know middle school or or something, right? But like just the controls and the UI and everything of System Shock, like to support all of that complexity, was also just like like a. Yo it, God, it, yeah! It, it had a learning curve. Like System Shock is to you know. this day one
2: of my favorite games. System Shock One, not 2 i We're talking about that one. But even I have a super hard time going back to play it because it's I, like yeah. bizarre. Like it doesn't have head clamping, right? So it's like you have to manually pile yourself around like a tank, but then you have to cursor at the same time to point at different things on the screen. Yeah. And
0: they someone released a mod that uh, puts mouse look in, yep. which I played, and that that actually I'm that does that help helps a, lot, a lot. Yeah, yeah. but um, but yeah, with with. That legacy of games a big part of the progression has been increasing accessibility over time yeah i think and was like when you were internal at, at looking glass was that a big part of the thought process going
2: from like the shock games to thief definitely and i mean that all happened before i arrived so i arrived during the development were, were you late on thief one i wasn't late uh I, I would say in modern terms, I would say that they were close to the end of pre-pro. Oh,
0: okay. So they already right. kind
2: of knew what the the idea of the game was and what the mechanics would be. Okay. And there was certainly a shift of emphasis and stuff during development. But it wasn't like I, I certainly didn't. I mean, I helped uh, execute on the vision, but it, I didn't like come up with the idea for stealth right. or I wasn't. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, from being right. around those guys. But, so know. I got to hear them talk a lot about what the goals were and what the idea was. And, yeah, a big, one of the big uh, impetuses was the idea that, like, they'd, they'd make these very, in their next one after System Shock, by the way, is the not very well-known Terra Nova. Oh, right. Which is, you know, another entry into this, like, sophisticated, you have to think about multiple units at once who are doing things and you're manually controlling them, but you're also a commander and you're also, you know, like, just, like, t- layer after layer of sophistication. Yeah. Um, and they're like, you know, we keep doing this and it's not working, like, could we pair this down to sort of like a much more accessible base thing and you know by Von or Sanders Thief is nothing is not accessible no. <laughs> uh, but you know and that's kind of to me that's a, a you know a, after you,
0: after you re- re- rebind some keys it gets a little better yeah, but it's true. still like
2: yeah know. and to me that's like kind of a you know, there's a, a testament there about the terms dumbing things down. Like, I'm not, I'm not at all convinced that dumbing things down is bad. Like, I don't think there's a lot of people who are like, Super Mario Brothers is a crappy game because there's only two buttons. Like, you know, there's a lot of sophistication you can do with very little input. Yes. And I think it was that mentality that Looking Glass was attempting to approach. Like, well, let's cut as much stuff as possible. Let's try to keep you right there in your first-person world. Let's have the story be right in front of your face. You know, like a bunch yeah. of... Like, let's have objectives that are clear and get checked off. Like, a lot of this stuff was toward the goal of making the game more accessible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were definitely trying to do that. And it worked. You know, I think uh, Thief did way better business than their previous games.
0: Yeah. Um, and you
2: did... Were you early enough that you... Um... Like we're pitching
0: levels on that,
2: or Um, you know, there was a level document, and we didn't even get to all of them. I think there were supposed to be like twenty or something, and we shipped like twelve, so yeah. a lot of them got cut. And there was a really no, like, it was a really good level document. I never felt like it. I I had a better level idea. Like I thought the the entries we had were good. I did pitch the multiplayer stuff at one point, and mm-hmm. then tried that again when I became the project director of Thief Three. Uh, but for the single player stuff, we were pretty happy with it. Yeah, and because yeah.
0: um, you worked on like. At least to me, most notably, you worked on Return to Cathedral, right?
2: Yeah, Return to Cathedral is the one that I get most associated with yeah. Thief. I did—I mean, I did the, the Keeper's training, the first level of the game. Oh, cool! I did a lot of the scripting and development for that. Um, I mean, it was a pretty collaborative effort. A lot of people worked no, on I'm a sure lot of different are. parts. So uh, we got—we got some of us got a baby levels, and I got to baby Return to Cathedral. I got to be like mine. Yeah. Um, and later on, as a director, I, I really liked that policy and being like, hey, we're all working on all these levels, but if you just have one that's yours, what do you want? And so, like, Jordan Thomas really wanted, for FIFA 3, really wanted the cradle. Right. And so, you know, he and I collaborated on that, but he got to own and baby and put more disproportionate effort into it. Right. Which sometimes really helps. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: sure. But no, so the levels were worked out, but when I say that, it, there were like one or two page sheets that was sort of like, here's the broad strokes, yeah. you know, and like, here's the types of events or activities you want to emphasize. So, and this, I understand this goes on in Bethesda too. Although I can't say that, like I haven't done that directly. Obviously, it's just my understanding. Yeah, it's like they provide a lot, and we did at Looking Glass a lot of liberal uh, ownership of working out those details to even like very junior folks, and not with a lot of oversight either. You know, it's sort of like, well, there's your document. and I'm like, okay, well, I've decided on return to cathedral. There's going to be this entire cloister thing in the back, and yeah. it's going to have these buildings, and here what goes on these, you know, like, and here's the quest structure, and I got to really fill that out, and, yeah. uh, and all the levels were kind of like that. Cool. Yeah, I
0: think, I mean, there's, that does seem like a great way for it to be collaborative because I assume that after you had gone in and filled a bunch of the details out, then people, you got feedback on that once it had gone into the game and stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's a, you know, there's basically a slider here between something being like super tightly directed by a single vision and then something being, uh, you know, more of a hive mind. And I think at Looking Glass it was cranked pretty far towards hive mind, uh, so everybody got to contribute and flesh out the vision. Yeah. Um, with only just a little bit of oversight, like maybe I went back one or two notches towards direction because, yeah. like, you know, there were people sort of, like, giving me feedback that I should respond to. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I forgot what I was going
0: to say. <laughs> well, you were on the Thief series Unbroken for a lot of years. Seven right? years, yeah. Yeah, because you went straight from the first one to the second one. Yep. And then, yeah, you were the
2: the... Lead
0: designer, project director... Project of director of
2: 3 yeah. 3 and that was at IonStorm, Austin. It's, it started at Looking Glass, but then that was just like a few months later we went out of business, and so it yeah. shifted over to IonStorm. Yeah, because Looking Glass um, closed
0: down shop, what, in like 99 or something like that? 2000. Okay, 2000. Yeah. Um, and so how did that transition go that brought you to, to Ion Austin? Because they had worked on, or they were working on DSX at the time. They had
2: just shipped DSX... A few months earlier, okay. and you know that was really successful to them for them. And I think I don't even remember if they got. I guess they'd been Ironstorm forever because so there's two yeah. Ironstorm offices, and one was Dallas, right? Yeah, the suck it down dudes in Dallas, and right. then there was the the nerd intellectuals in Austin, right? Um, and
0: and IDOS published all of that stuff, so they owned the rights to Thief. So well, they didn't. They right. bought it in auction, I think. Oh, like some okay. of these
2: business details are vague to me, but yeah, my. Yeah, yeah. Actually, so, and recently, I don't know how interesting business details are, but uh, they're not even the same IDOS either. They got, IDOS thing went on to get bought by Square Enix, but right. the group of people who at that time was called IDOS, I guess could have, they were late to pay Looking Glass our royalties for Thief. And if they had paid them on time, we, the Looking Glass would still be alive, is a rumor <laughs> I've, I've heard today. Yeah, so that's exciting. Yeah. Not, not that Looking Glass was doing a great job making games that were keeping us in business and paying everybody salaries or anything right. like that. So there's obviously some... Some situations on both sides. But anyway, yeah, so yeah. IDOS didn't pay the royalty on time, maybe. That's a rumor. I'm yeah. not exactly sure. And Looking Glass couldn't make payroll. And I remember we had a meeting and we were like, hey, we're out of business officially. And then there's an auction for all the IP and all the equipment. And mm-hmm. IDOS bought the thief and other IP in this auction and then gave it to the Ions Firm office. And they're like, hey, you guys just did this Deus Ex thing that seems pretty good. And, and Warren Spector, who ran that office, was really interested. And he's like, I really want to keep the Thief alive and I want to keep working yeah. on it. So then. I had a bunch of different places I could have gone to work after Looking Glass and I came down to Austin and interviewed and I was just smitten as much by the city as I was uh, to work on the studio, but I liked the idea of continuing to work in the same kind of field, even if I was a little reluctant to work on the same exact game for seven years. Right, right. It um, still felt like a good step up. Like, I got to improve my responsibilities from just, like, regular designer, and I kind of took on some creative direction-type responsibilities for Thief 2, and now I got to direct a whole project. It was actually yeah. kind of too many steps up at once, frankly, right? <laughs> because I didn't go through the lead design step where I'm like, oh, sure. I'm running a team, and I'm handing things off. So it went, I skipped that and went straight to, like, I'm running the entire, you know, project, well, I mean, it was they a. Sometimes. There was a
0: lot of stuff going on with Thief Three compared to the prior games, too, right? Because it was they were using a different engine, mm-hmm. without a different studio, mm-hmm. so I assume that you know the team was being built at the same time the game was being built to some degree. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, for all of those games, I think that happened
2: every time.
0: Yeah, and then yeah, like you were saying, it was a it was a big transition for your responsibilities personally. Mm-hmm. Yep. But it seems like an interesting place to be because you had been you know working with the ip and everything for a long time and you're obviously super deeply familiar with it yep what approach did you want to take when it was like okay and you're going to be leading the third game and you know ha- being being responsible responsible for like you know maintaining the, the series right? yeah
2: so i remember that i had a, a bunch of goals in in my directorial role over Thief three and uh one of them uh, was authenticity. Like, I wanted it to be a, an authentic and legitimate successor to the first two games. So, yeah. um, you know, I knew sort of, like, what internally we had been thinking about the story and where it was going. Uh, I knew a lot of, like, the values and themes that were important to the story, and I knew how to sort of keep continuity with those. And I definitely wanted it to continue being a game about stealth
1: yeah. and
2: not suddenly turn into, like, a, a guns-blazing shooter or anything like that. Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, Thief 3, despite what obviously were some, like, technical challenges with the level sizes and stuff yep. like that, it was still very much, I mean, I didn't feel like it really compromised anything about the core um, tenets of, you
2: know, what the gameplay was about, yeah. right? I mean. Yeah, it, no, it was definitely, you know, and I, I as a very gameplay-centric uh, designer. Like, I also, in Thief 2, I did the bank level, which right. probably to a fault, frankly, is a very, like, everything is a little, like, stealth set piece, kind of, like, very focused on the core gameplay kind of a level. And so I did bring that mentality into Thief 3. Uh, and also, you know, we wanted to address some of the, the gameplay issues. Like, we were hoping to make Escape more interesting so it wasn't, like, an instant, like, hit the, the quick reload button the second you got caught type of a game and stuff right like that. But, yeah, so there's an authenticity challenge. Um, I did want to make the game even more mainstream accessible. And, not, again, not in a dumbing-down way, but in a, like, there's got to be some baggage we can kick overboard here. And, 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 you know, and I actually think I did not succeed in that goal. I think there's still tons of, like... We felt like it was streamlined. When I go back and look at the three, I'm like, what were we thinking? It's ridiculous. Like we mapped every single controller on the Xbox. It's like that is not necessary. Yeah. You yeah, know? yeah. Like it's ridiculous. I think that um, a lot of
0: stuff, like, for instance, context action kind of stuff, I feel like is something that's really developed a lot, just yeah. in kind of the broader design vocabulary in the industry since then, right? Like I feel like there's a lot of stuff now in a game like that that probably been like, well, we use you know fewer buttons for you do this action in this situation and are kind of like more yeah. context aware whereas like yeah you start from a pc gaming background where you have the whole keyboard to work with right. and everything it's like well you have a button for every command and that's how you do yeah. it right and i
2: mean i'm actually like i kind of like maximal design like i think there's something magical about the fact that when you play ultima 4 like literally every single letter maps to some different <laughs> thing like oh i'm trying to jimmy this lock with my lock picks and i'm trying to like quit and take, you know, take a nap or whatever, like, like all these crazy mappings, but it's kind of awesome because it creates a sense of magic in the world that when you compress everything down to like use object on object, right? like it kind of loses a little magic, but yeah, it clearly right. is streamlined and we were going for a more streamlined thing if you three, like I was really hoping that more, cause we were very aware of the fact that our audience was devoted, but very hardcore, yeah. you know, and, and I was like, there's something appealing here that we should try to get to more people. You know, yeah. So we made some attempts at that, and one of the things that was was sort of like leveling up. Like, uh, Looking Glass was a very frugal environment, and most of our features, uh, you know, features were hard to come by. Like, you really had to argue that a feature would make the game better and be applicable across a lot of different contexts to to validate it or even to try yeah. it out. You know, so on Thief Three, I was hoping to that we'd be able to make the graphics better and have the game more beautiful and put in some special effects and. Uh, above and beyond the visual stuff, like try a bunch of different power ups and see which ones would work and what combinations and like, you know, just really get to play a little bit more like a triple A studio would. Yeah. Like I tend to call looking glass a triple A studio, but that's kind of a lie. Like by modern standards they're a very big indie studio. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, it's true. I mean you know. and on a per Project basis, they never put like a hundred people on one project or anything. Right? Yeah, like, it I th- was like
2: I think there's a hundred people in the office because, but we had kind of a it, two halves. There was the flight yeah flight sim simulator stuff, right. half, and then there was the first person half. Yeah. Um.
0: So on Thief Three, did it? What was the structure like? Did it fall to you to also you know be kind of the guy who was making the calls about like creatively and story-wise and character-wise, like, this fits with Thief and this doesn't and that kind of stuff? Yeah, or? for
2: sure. Uh, you know, I think that was my, you know, the first time I actually was a, a game director is I got to sort of be the vision keeper for that, although, yeah. as I said, on Thief 2 I was sort of pushing some of that. You know, there was a few things I have managed to get cut out of Thief 2 which would have horrified the hardcore fans. <laughs> so, so, you know, I'd already had some experience being like, this is the vision, here's what, you know, trying to articulate that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so that was part of what I did in Thief 3. I mean at the beginning I was also the lead designer so I got to you know I led it I led the design team but we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the levels would be in the worlds and how the open world thing would work and well, yeah. you know like what the levels would be what the powers would be because I think the, the 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 thief world
0: and Garrett as an expression of the thief you know the of of a product of that world you know mm-hmm. they're both really interesting and I feel like hard to pin down you mm-hmm. know because they have a lot of these these, these contradictory or maybe complementary um, aspects all at the same time that I've been talking to, like, I, I talked to Craig Hubbard, who was uh, really deeply involved with, like, No One Lives Forever, and it's a stealth game, and it doesn't take its so, whole, like, it's outright a comedy game, and Thief isn't, but it has levity to it, like, it's this... Mm-hmm dark, almost sort of like quasi-depressing, semi-medieval world, but then a bunch of the guard conversations yep. are just like goofy, yep. and Garrett is seemingly transplanted from like a noir film, you know, and, and yep. it has this, this really interesting mishmash of concepts that it seems like it's hard to put your finger on, like, here's why Garrett and these uh, uh, guard conversations are okay, but... We also have these other aspects yeah. that are way more dark and serious and like pagan. Like when you like when you're playing Thief One and the passages from like the Hammerites and the Pagans and stuff come up on screen, yeah. they're like
2: pretty grim almost stuff. scary yeah.
0: in how like heavy they are. You know. Um, so how did you like how did you define or how did you articulate like this is what makes sense for the Thief world?
2: Yeah, I'm glad you asked because this is actually the thing I lost track of what I was saying earlier when I was talking about, like, hey, they give us some pretty, you know, even junior folks have pretty broad range over what we want to do creatively. Yeah. And it's a hive mind at looking glass. I mean, the flip side to that, especially with Thief, I think, is... There was, uh, first of all, there's a lot of alignment. I think we shared a lot of value. So we tended to read into descriptions the same way and understand things in the same way, which helps, but there really was like almost a magical clarity of direction that came out of that. And maybe that was Greg LaPiccolo's partially his responsibility because he was really good at talking about what, you know, what he wanted the game to be in, in simple ways that were still evocative enough for everybody to read into the same way kind of a thing. Um... But yeah, I mean, the design document helped. There were certain... Disc- but like, I've, I've myself been one of these people and I've heard other people like just go on and on and on about creative direction and still just not capture it. And then I've heard really amazing creative directors say like just one simple sentence that everybody can grab onto and be like, we're working towards that. And it really helps to unify people. And uh, so I think part of what went on in Thief is like, we all just got it. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not sure that's true for everybody on the team. And again, as I said, I had to push back on creative direction occasionally and be like, that would not happen or whatever. But there's, like, a handful of us who just, like, I'm sure if you drag Terry here right now and you're, like, what would Hammerite say and blah, 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 she know, I would be, like, oh, it'd be this. Like, we just get it. Like, yeah. we instantly sort of know. And similarly for Garrett, like, once we developed his voice, we just knew what he would say or think about anything. Yeah. You know? There's never a, like, oh, say we put Garrett in the situation, which is he going to choose? Like, we always just knew.
0: like Yeah. And I guess a lot of that is, like, shared history because you worked on stuff. Yeah, certainly after six time, years, right? you, better, yeah. you better know. Um, but when you had people that were coming onto the team for the first time, you know, like, was it the kind of situation where we're getting people aligned on, like, what the property was and what it was about was...
2: Again, for Thief 1, the, you know, I was, like, one of a small handful of new folks right. on a team that had been together for a while, and yeah. so I didn't see a lot of that. Interestingly, for Thief 2... I would have expected this not to be the case, uh, because once you've released the game, there there's the, the direction. Like, right. you know, direction is the art of telling everyone who's working on something what it is before it comes out. But right. once it comes out, everyone knows what it is. Yeah. So I would have expected everybody we hired who was so excited about the original Thief would be like, yes, we're making another one of those, and yeah. just kind of get these nuanced things. But we still had people proposing that there be, like, a recording studio... In Thief Two, and I'm like, that is like the people in Thief Two don't listen to music. <laughs> you <laughs> right. know, like, you like, don't see a lot of record players yeah, around. Yeah. You're off in so many different ways at once. Um so yeah, I, I feel like it did require a little bit of policing and uh especially I feel like after the core sort of like um original Thief One members sort of trailed off. Because the Living Glass went through another kind of rough period between Thief One and Thief Two yeah. and lost a handful of folks, including like Greg at that point. Uh, went on to Harmonix. He was really excited to work on music software. You know? Yeah. So some of that stuff is pretty rough for the company Yeah, yeah. in yeah. terms of direction and, and cohesion.
0: So, yeah, Thief 3 came out. And um, at that point, you moved on from, from uh, Thief in general, from Ion Austin. And you spent yep.
2: a couple of years in L.A um so I started consulting like uh, right. and so it was actually the guy who got I had this idea I might want to consult because that seemed kind of a cool way to take time off and you know as a creative person you need to recharge a lot which seems really extravagant to people who aren't creative people maybe but like unless you go on vacation or go have adventures or expand your life and stop thinking about your work for a while you're not you're just not going to have anything to say you're only going to be talking about doing your work yeah uh so, you know, I knew I needed to take some time off and I thought this would be a good way to do it and sort of explore and get paid. And the guy who led me into this was actually Raph Colantonio, who oh. runs Arcane, who just released Dishonored last year, right? right. And at the time, they had finished uh, the game called Arcs Fatalis a little while earlier and they All had right. come to visit us because it was basically an homage to Underworld, uh, which Looking Glass put out, but Looking Glass didn't exist anymore. So he came to hang out with like uh, me and Harvey Smith and Warren Spector at Ironstorm Austin. And so we got to know them through that. And then they were working on a new game called Dark Messiah of Might and Magic, right. uh, kind of commissioned through Ubisoft. Yeah. And so Ubisoft actually was the ones who officially hired me to go work with that team for a while in the Right. And yeah, they used uh, Valve's
0: software. They used yep, the, the, the source engine. source engine yeah. for that. Yeah. I actually, now I remember one of the first G C talks I saw you do was talking about like the puzzle design in yeah. Dark Messiah and stuff. Yeah. Because that was kind
2: of where I started thinking about it, I mean, it was a good period for me to, to formulate more of my thoughts more concretely in that sort of looking-glass school of thought that, you know, game design isn't um, an art form where you wave a magic wand and, and come up with the right answer out of your intuition. It's also, like, a formal... It can, to some extent, be a formal science. Just like any other art form, it has terminology. Um, and it's also based on computers, so a lot of computer science and other, like, very concrete sciency things also apply. Yeah. Know? So uh, that's... In between time was a good time for me to sort of, like, ramp up on a lot of that thinking. But yeah, so I went into a consultant phase, and I worked uh, for Arcane. I worked for Ubisoft on a couple other projects. I was actually up in the Ubisoft Montreal office, oh, okay. uh, sort of flirting with those guys about the potential of, of being there you know, full-time. Clint Hawking was up there at the time. Right, some other yeah, folks. yeah. Uh, and then one of the consulting gigs I did was in Los Angeles uh, for a team at Electronic Arts that Doug Church was heading up, and Doug, of course, had been... Uh, an important figure out looking glass, he was the project director of System Shock, he was the guy who laid down some of the very important fundamental gameplay aspects of Thief, and he was my design mentor. Like, even yeah. though he wasn't there a lot, and I had a lead, who's also a super smart designer, Tim Stelmach, I had sort of like the most spiritual kinship with Doug,
1: yeah. and if I really
2: needed to understand something, I would go to Doug, and he would explain it in a way I understood. The thing I've heard is that he kept really weird hours. Yes, he did. That doesn't make him unique at Looking Glass. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think I was listening to... I was actually listening to an interview with Ken Levine when he was talking about all his Looking Glass stuff, and he was like, yeah, uh, Doug would come into the office at, like, midnight, and I would hang out so that I could be in the office at the same time as him, even though it was completely insane hours, just to, like, kind of, like you were saying, have that mentorship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you... You took that opportunity to work with him again, in yeah. In so. LA, and I mean, we don't have to talk about this a lot because it's a project that not a lot has been talked about, like yeah. publicly or whatever. But you were on a crazy, almost kind of skunkworksy kind of project there that involved like Steven Spielberg, and you were doing a lot of like really, I guess, ambitious stuff. Is my understanding?
1: Um,
2: yeah. On that no, so that project's code name was LMNO. Um, and it was at the LA office of Electronic Arts, and Doug Church was heading it up. Uh, one of the other important creative folks was um, Neil Young, not the rock star, but the developer who did right. this really awesome game, Majesco. Not Majesco, that's a publisher. Uh, Majestic. Uh, Majestic. There the, we go. Uh, the one that would send you faxes and right. other was like It was, like a, like, that. It was yeah. like a video game slash alternate reality game and it could like call you on your phone. And, yeah, yeah. So it was
0: the first big th- alternate reality game that would contact you on every kind of device that you had in the year 2000 or whatever. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah.
2: And so Neil Neil had a pretty good creative background but he was really on the project because he has a flair for selling things in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Like, you know, he did so, he was important at EA because he worked on the Lord of the Rings projects. He basically, oh, okay. like, Golden Axe plus Lord of the Rings, the IP equals lots of money for EA. Which, you know, and there's not, strangely, there's not a lot of people who can drive those kind of decisions all the way down. You know, so he was an important in a couple of different capacities. And then Steven Spielberg, who had had a creative partnership with Electronic Arts and was trying to make a handful of games, one of which did came out, uh, Boom Blocks, which right. uh, Robin Hunneke was an important creative person on. And some yeah. Other folks. yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, so we're working on one of the other games with Steven. And so we, it, was, it was great in a lot of ways. We got to meet with Steven once a week, and he would give us his feedback and see what we're doing. And we'd talk about what we're trying to accomplish and so forth. Yeah. And it was cool, um, but yeah, it was a very ambitious project. There was other challenges, and then there was a recession in 2008. Yeah, and yeah, uh, had to tighten its belt in a lot of different departments. Well, it
0: seems like it was around that time where, um, in AAA, especially, everything except for sure bets was getting shut down. Yeah, you know, it was like risks were becoming a lot less attractive to big publishers, and it was much more put really big budgets into what they think of as like known. Quantities, right? Like I imagine yeah. a project that was sounds like it was more experimental in Very a lot of experimental, ways. Yeah, uh, would have. I could. I could see how. Yeah, when
2: there was a downturn, the money people could be like,
0: I don't know if this thing is going to yeah. make ROI. There is a
2: handful of strategies for keeping the project out of the crosshairs of, yeah. of those types of folks for a long time, but then uh, eventually, it you know, it did fall in the crosshairs. Like yeah. some of our protective umbrellas went away, and you know. yeah. So that put you back in a position of
0: being like, well, what am I going to do next,
2: right? Yeah. No, that was, a, in a lot of ways, that was a great moment for me. So I had been in Los Angeles for two and a half years. Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with Los Angeles. In retrospect, there's a lot of stuff that was really awesome about it, but a lot of my core values of having deep connections with other people and being in nature and having, you know, a grounded sense of, like, there's a ton of stuff that L.A. was doing very different things. You know, it's not, yeah, a per- sure. it's not by far not a perfect town for me. So I was excited to get away from L.A. Um, and indie games were really just building momentum at the time. Uh, yeah. You know, prior to that, I feel like indie games were, like, very on the periphery, and they are very experimental and extremely low budget. There were very few third-party tools. So if you are yeah. trying to make an indie game, as like, you know, you had an empty hard drive and an open pair of brackets and C++, go. You know, right. it was, like, not, it was not a good starting point. So a lot of people had to work really hard to make very simple games. They didn't come from industry. They didn't yeah. have great... There's no, you know, schools. They didn't have a great background in yeah. game design. Or there would be, like,
0: Flash games, and it would be on Newgrounds or some other portal, which is... But that still has its own, a ton of its own limitations, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, the, the they, options were smaller at
2: the time. Well, but that's... You know, that was a couple years before. Like, the, like, there's really fascinating things going on in indie games occasionally, but there's a lot more sort of, like half aborted attempts or like just garbage attempts at clones like it just wasn't a real scene yet with occasional standouts you know and I was really you know seduced by the idea that you could just go ahead and make your own game you know even if it was something very simple like Passage which I'm going to go ahead and guess that Jason Roar's Passage didn't make $10,000 or a $100,000 or anything you know like I mean mean you you released it for free right so so probably probably not (laughs) uh but you know the idea that you could still make something really personal and really small and be like, look, even though it's not, it's zero has zero in common with a mass market game. It's yeah. still like a legitimate video game. And there's just so many fields and areas that I wanted to push on, uh, and experiment with that. I knew my my AAA career was going to give me very marginal, uh, possibility to actually do something that I felt was meaningful.
0: Yeah. So how exactly did you did you hook up with the team that that made Tiger Style? Like I know it's. You and David um, are at least the guys from Tiger Style that I know, and you seem yep. like kind of the core of that studio. Had you guys worked together um, before? Yeah,
2: David uh, David was originally on. Um, I remember I was told to go look at this game at E3 that year. It was a game called Splinter Cell, <laughs> the very first, and people were like, there's some cool stuff going on, you check this out, because we we're making Thief 3, which is also a stealth game. Right. Uh, and. Yeah, we kind of stole him from Clint. <laughs> we basically went over and you know, like we had a we had a whole AI department. David had been doing AI, so he came from the Splinter Cell team shortly before they shipped and then joined on with both DSX and DSX Two and Thief Three at Storm Austin. Doing so he AI programs, doing stuff. AI type stuff, and so cool. he and I had collaborated a few times on stealth AI and some stuff like that, you know. Uh, and, you yeah, know, we're, we're all pretty tight here in the Austin scene, so he's just a friend as well. Yeah. But then I was gone for many years doing other stuff. Um, and he was he was at Midway and then left Midway because uh, they shut down and then was kind of free-forming it for a while. And he came out to L.A. because he had friends there and was going to... He interviewed with the Elemento team just to see if that might be interesting to him. So right. then he and I reconnected at that point. Yeah. And so then it wasn't long after that that uh, I left the Elemento team. Right. And uh, so I just... so. I knew I wanted to work in indie games. Uh, I knew I wanted a team of people to help me out. So I basically just sent, I reached out to a lot of different people and mostly just sent emails. But it's like people like David who are former colleagues that I like to work with. uh, Friends of mine from college who had always been like a little jealous that I worked in games and wanted to, you know, wanted their shot. I'm like, well, this is your shot. Like, this is an indie team. Anybody can contribute, right? (laughs) Uh, Doing what kind of stuff? Like for music and art and stuff like that? Yeah, so a lot of them, a lot of my former friends, whether it was from college or some other place, were musicians, and so they kind of got a chance to submit some songs that were the soundtrack to Spider and Waking Mars. So they did a really yeah. awesome job. Cool. Um, you know, we had some folks who had been working on like kind of more dry, boring government database type programming stuff, but they wound up helping out with like, like leaderboards. You know, like yeah. just like I, I was very. I wasn't like, here's the list of open positions. I was much more like, who wants to work? And therefore, let's build a team. And therefore, what can we make with this team? You know, I sort of did a top down.
0: And that's, I mean, that's very, that's very similar to where, where I started with Gone Home and the Fulbright company is like, I knew we needed a programmer and an artist because I'm not a programmer or an artist and you need those things. Uh, And, and so, you know, I, I, reached out to Bjornman, who's a programmer and Carla and I would worked with them in 2K Marin, and Carla's, like, a 2D artist primarily. Uh, I mean, she has 3D art background, but, like, she did all of the 2D art for, like, Minerva's Den, like, all the posters and documents and, and stuff, and had been my story partner. And s- similarly, it was like, okay, here are, it's the three of us, we're all willing to make something. Therefore, what can that thing be, right? And I think that that is, when you're starting out, like, making your own thing, that's way more productive than, like, Bring a design document and then try to figure out how to hire all the people to make this thing, right? Because it is way more about like who's in, who's committed, who's invested, who's like ready to, to get something on screen. And then I think that, you know, there's like an infinite number of possibilities for like what could a good game be made out of. So yeah. when you're like, well, here are the people that we have, guaranteed this group of people can make something cool. Let's figure out what that is, right?
2: Yeah, totally. And I mean, even to the point where like we didn't really know. We certainly didn't know what our first game would be, and even, even after we picked Spider and started working on it, it really evolved a lot, you yeah. know. The first conception of Spider was much more of a, a Spider simulator, whereas, like, oh, here's where, you know, like, you attach one thread and you spool down, and, like, you build your web one step at a time, and you wait patiently for insects to, to arrive, you know, like, it was, yeah. in which there's some appeal to that. I still think there might be a pretty cool, like, very, like, realistic Spider simulator to get yeah. out there. But then as we developed the mechanics, we got them to do faster and tried to figure out what would work with the touchscreen. And, you know, we had this, like, this tilt-based walking mechanic for a while that we were like, oh, my God, this gets really confusing for a lot of people, so we had to cut it. And, you know, yeah. like, eventually we just, um, you know, it just became this much more fast-paced action game about, we realized, like, an action drawing game. Like, yeah. you have to do pull, pull off this action in order to draw one line, and then you have to make a shape, and then that's your web. Yeah. And so then that that sort of drove everything else. So. Yeah, because you're really early
0: days for iOS uh, game development, and so I imagine that there was a this process of finding oh, the most fun kind of input to do is like swiping. Like it feels good, it's interesting, yeah, right? And yeah, then yeah. you can kind of build from there to say, okay, how does that play into the kind of game that you started? Like, yeah. how does that make a whip? You know, how does that yeah, make a spider jump?
2: Whatever, right? You know, and then once we had, I remember there's this moment where. I don't even think we had, we didn't have threads that could be on angles yet, it was all like 90 degrees or whatever, but we kind of had the basics, and like, I just saw it, and I knew we were building threads, building webs in an environment, and if you build them in the right place, you would catch insects, and I just said, yeah, we can make an entire game out of this. Yeah. I was like, that's it, that's all we need, you know, and we did. Yeah, and you explored the possibilities of that, you know, through level design, and bug yeah. behaviors and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. That's all it was after that is like level design and bug behaviors basically. Yeah. And, and you know, it, revising and revising and revising and revising it, the crap out of the core mechanic until it was really as good as we can make it.
0: Yeah. I imagine that with that size of team, like you know, when we were talking earlier and I was, you know, sort of like, okay, when you were when you were leading up Thief Three, how do you communicate, you know, what works and doesn't to other team members and, and stuff and and maintain the tone and make it say this is the is not mm-hmm. I imagine that on, like, Spider, you were pretty much the level designer.
1: Yeah, and, and that
0: and it's was it's like awesome. you only had to maintain that with yourself and maybe, like, the artists to make sure yep. that the art, like, maintain the tone of and what it, this place
2: is supposed to be like. And, yeah, and so, again, that was, like, uh, you know, part of sort of, like, the, a f- positive and fun response to some of the negative aspects of my former career. Like, when you're working at a big company... In a leadership role, the moment comes where you're actually not doing work anymore. You're just telling other people to do work, which seems reasonable. But if you actually think about it, like, you would never have... uh, This actually did happen in the Renaissance, so I'm lying. But (laughs) you would never have, like, an artist who, like, has a bunch of other people with paintbrushes who are like, okay, I want you to put, like, kind of a thick slash of this red mixed slightly with that green. Like, no, you just actually have to hold the brush yourself to get what you want on screen. So I got to be much more in that, like, low-level capacity putting actual objects exactly where I wanted them, testing it, revising it, in like, these very small ways yeah, uh, to get to the vision. I mean, I think there was still a fair amount of confusion about the specifics, because Spider is sort of exists in this anachronistic space of, like, well, what time period is it? Because it feels very old-timey in certain ways, like yeah. from the Gilded Age of America. But in other ways, there's some, some obvious cues that it's not quite... Um, so you know, there was a certain amount to like work out there, and also it's kind of like if this '90s family moved into a really old <laughs> Isn't <that> house. Weird? <laughs> um, there's some stuff to work out, but also, I, as I said, I went from LA, which I found in many ways to be this like soulless hellscape of suburbia, into Vermont, which was you know settled in the 1700s. Uh, It was an agriculture community in a kind of a harsh natural environment that had its wonderful moment. And so, like, there's all this stuff about this very real existence that I wanted to capture. Like, I grew up in these towns that were hundreds of years old that had formerly been these beautiful railroad towns where the architecture and public spaces were exquisitely designed that were now inhabited by a bunch of folks like me who own, you know, Nintendo 8-bit game systems and drink sodas. Yeah. Um... And, but there's this, like, awesome, beautiful sense of multiple layers of history, you know? Right. And I just wanted I just wanted to make sure it was the real Vermont inspiration that showed out, up in Spider.
1: Yeah. And
2: actually, recently I went back and played spider One for the first time probably a year or longer. And I was really excited that I felt like we captured that correctly. Like, yeah. it's like, when I saw some of the pieces, I'm like, yeah, that is the right one. That's the thing I've seen a million times and I'm sort of in love with. Yeah. It cool. wound up on screen, you know, so that's cool. So you hinted at it when we were on stage... Do you want to talk about what you guys
0: <laughs> um, what you guys are working on now? Because I could ask you some stuff about it.
2: Um
1: Yeah.
0: Cause because I mean, so you're you're you moved away from that for Waking Mars. Yep. You 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 know, we're in a totally alien environment in a very literal sense, but you're you're from what you've told me, you're moving back into that space of something that's very much more relatable with your next game. What do you see like what are the challenges of re-entering that frame
2: without just retracing your steps, you know? Yeah. So we haven't had an official announcement yet, but I'll just keep talking as though that were unimportant. <laughs> when are you going to uh, do that? I don't know. We, it's, you know, we don't... You know, This probably isn't going to go up for like a couple months or something. In that so. case, it'll probably be official. Okay. Yeah. Great. All right. Um, it's actually been really, really... So here's the thing. Like, we made Waking Mars rather than Spider 2 because we are excited to innovate all the time. Yeah. Like, there's a whole universe of games out there to be made, um, and we are always keen on trying some new thing, right? Um, but in between Spider and Waking Mars, we made a bunch of prototypes that didn't go anywhere, partially because our company's not awesome at rapid prototyping, you know? Uh, and partially because, hey, some of those ideas weren't as great as we had thought, because you never know until you yeah. start making it, you know? Um and so we did that again after waking Mars. We have like a bunch of prototypes and some of them are actually we feel like we're on the trail of something really good, but it's going to take us a while. And we're not a wealthy company. We just can't sit around for years and like wait till we find something. Yeah. Um so we got to keep moving and uh so we're kind of doing the strategy where we get to work on a known IP, which is uh a you know, a more solved problem so the unknowns are fewer and we'll probably do a better job. Uh while simultaneously continuing to pursue some our prototype stuff in the background yeah yeah so but it's but it's been kind of relieving despite this idea that like oh i want to try a new thing and build things from the ground up like waking mars was a, like a very challenging ip to build because i wanted it to be very credible hard sci-fi which meant doing tons and tons and tons of research in, this, in fields i didn't know about yeah but then it also needs to be imaginative and it's a really crowded field Uh, where everything's been done in sci-fi so we're trying to find this unique thing and we wanted to be valid you know it's like it's just kind of a pain in the butt like you have to make up new things that no one's done before which is already impossible in in sci-fi and then you have to validate them so it's like kind of an an awkward place to be um but spider is a much more natural home for me like it's the second i started building new stuff for spider it was just like really just it just flows out like i remember i just like drew a spider level in like not even 20 minutes and i was like this is perfect like who did it? Like who did this? I don't remember I don't remember doing this it just, just now. happened. It does. It's a fugue yeah. State. yeah. It's yeah, it's, it it just kind of flows out. So the nice thing is that like in spider one I actually there's only like maybe 5 days when I had to I was able to stop and take a bunch of steps back and be like, so what is this story and who are the characters and where are we going to learn that this character did that or what's the evidence we're going to see that this happened? So very little time went it's organizing, and a lot of it is just making up on the fly. Like, oh, I'll put this prop in, I'll put this prop in, and yeah. that connects over here, and hopefully it works. And there's a little bit of adjustment at the end to make sure it's fine. Mostly right. it was very much a downhill slide. And so for the new Spider game, we have been planning it for weeks and weeks now. So not only is it easier, not only do we know what we're doing, not only is it a natural thing for us to design, we've actually got to spend tons and tons of time like mapping it out and understanding it, which means we got to put in a lot more layers so, for one thing, we get to put in a lot more layers of puzzle and sophistication, which I'm excited about. And we also understand the storytelling technique better. Yeah. So we get to set up things a lot more deliberately. I think it's going to work a lot better for people. Cool. And also, we get to pull off some stuff that we're really excited that we're going to be able to pull off.
0: Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do with it. Because it, it sounds like you were saying. A lot of stuff about the first game you you just discovered or made up as you went along. So it'll be really interesting to see how maybe a more something with a a more robust foundation I guess all that stuff looks
2: um, and and what you do with it and for better or worse I mean that I mean Spider 1's story has like kind of a scrappy feel where it kind of feels like somebody made it up on the fly but like (laughs) a real story is like that
0: too yeah there's no planning to I mean there's planning in our lives but the Story arc right. of what happens to us is not something that's
2: determined up front, I guess, unless you hold certain weird philosophies. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> as far as I'm aware, certain, things. Certainly, just gotta if you have to abandon your house in a rush, you're probably not going to plan out how the props are laid. Right. On, you know, yeah. and so that scrappy feel I think works really well for Spider. Uh, I'm gonna be. I'm using a light touch to the extent I'm like guiding the experience in Spider too. Like I yeah. still want it to feel that sense of happenstance and discovery, uh, but I do want to. Like you just have to you have to work a little harder to set things up if you're if you're aiming for like kind of bigger results I yeah think. so there's a little bit more setup yeah that's good
0: well thank you so much for talking to me today and good luck
2: with uh tiger styles next project all right <laughs> well thanks steve and uh congratulations again on the success of gone home we're really excited to see what fulbright will be working on next <laughs> I know so am i <laughs> i know that feeling <laughs> <laughs> all right
1: thanks